0: Thank you. Father, we begin by thanking you for being a living God, a good God, a loving God, a God who likes to change people, who likes to serve people, who likes to help people because that's exactly what we need. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for enabling our sins to be forgiven through your death on the cross. We thank you for the possibility of a new heart through your resurrection and new life that you provide. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are actively, continually at work in the hearts and minds and lives of your children. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to conform us to the image of Jesus as we seek to glorify God, our Heavenly Father. And so, Jesus, we ask this in your good name. Amen. I'll start by saying this. Uh, Paul is a man who is facing a lot of temptation in his life. He's he's in prison. I mean, the guy's even beaten up and... Hated and despised and opposed and blogged about. And he'd had a really rough, difficult life. And I'm sure there were temptations for him to give up, to give in, uh, to sort of settle into apathy and lethargy, thinking that he'd done enough for the kingdom. But he's a guy who's going to serve faithfully right through to the end. He's writing to a church in Philippi that's tempted to lose sight of Jesus, lose sight of their mission. They're falling into grumbling and complaining and division. And there's the beginnings of real controversy in that church. And so what we're going to see tonight is that scripture is timeless. And because of that, it's always very timely. Uh, There's a very important doctrine called the doctrine of providence that, that God is in charge of human history and that God is good and that God works things out just in the nick of time to help us learn what he has to teach us. And about a year ago, I picked this section of scripture about temptation that was on Paul and temptation that was on their church. And uh, curiously enough, not knowing in God's providential timing where we would be at as a church, we find ourselves at exactly the same point that they were in Philippians 2:12 through 30. Uh, The situation there was an urban church in a city, lots of new Christians. Uh, Overall, it was a church that had a lot of influence and was involved in church planning. Uh, It was a church that had sound doctrine. There weren't a lot of doctrinal controversies in that church. The one issue, though, that they were struggling with surrounded conflict and sin with two leaders. They're mentioned in chapter 4, verse 2. And these two leaders had somehow gotten into sin or pride or folly or we're not exactly sure what but there was contention and controversy around these two leaders. The people in the days of the Philippian church they responded with grumbling and questioning. So Paul in an effort to answer their questions and quell their grumbling wrote a letter. We'll begin in chapter 2 verse 12. He says, therefore, so we'll stop right there. That seems like a good place to take a break. And uh, therefore is picking up on what has transpired in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And that is that Jesus Christ is God who humbly came into human history to live a perfect life without sin, the life we have not lived, to go to the cross and die as a substitute in our place for our sins, paying our penalty for sin, which is death. And that Jesus Christ died and was buried, but then three days later he rose, conquering our enemies of sin and death. That he ascended back into heaven, and he is now glorified, he is exalted, he's ruling and reigning over all people's times, places, nations, and cultures from his heavenly throne. And that Jesus' name is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has made a new people. Jesus has made a new way of life. And Jesus' name is to be exalted in all things at all ways at all times by his people. He says, in light of the humility of Jesus to serve us and the greatness of Jesus who has been exalted, we should live our lives like Jesus, with Jesus, for Jesus, by the power that Jesus gives us. Therefore, my beloved, this is his heart for his people. He pastored that church. He planted that church as I pastor this church and planted this church. And his heart is one of love as my heart is one of love for you. And he uses the word beloved. I know some of you dudes are like, Pastor Mark, don't call me beloved. All right, I'll call you a Christian dude who I really like in a masculine way. Okay, we'll call it that. (laughs) You ladies, you're the beloved. There you go. Maybe that feels a little better. But he's, he's an older man at this point. He's been a Christian for about 30 years. And as such, he started off as kind of a tough, rugged, you know, guy. And God's softened his heart. And now he uses words like beloved, and I love you, and I care for you. And, and he's become more tender, not, not less courageous, but more tender as he gets older. I pray that same thing for myself. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, How many of you really don't like that word? (laughs) Obeyed. Obeyed? Obeyed. We live in a culture that is committed to disobedience. Children should rebel against their parents. Disobey them. It's sort of assumed. That's why the teenage years exist. The whole point is disobey. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your job description. Disobey. Right? Parents are encouraged to disobey spiritual leadership in the church. Their elders, adults are. People are encouraged to disobey God, to disobey scripture. It's sort of hip and trendy and cool and admirable in some circles to be disobedient, to be disrespectful, to be defiant. I'm guessing none of you woke up this morning and said, God, teach me to obey I want to obey. I love to obey. I long to obey. I pray that my boss would tell me a lot of things that I can do. I pray that leaders in my church would give me other things to do. I pray that my parents additionally would give me orders so that I might obey them. And God, I rejoice in obedience because I'm an obeyer and I'm all about obeying and I memorized all the words in the Bible that relate to obedience and all the verses that communicate obedience because I'm an obedient person. And what he's saying is this, if you have loving godly leadership, obey that leadership. If you have parents who love the Lord, obey them, right? If you have a boss who is a decent boss, obey them at your job. If you have pastors, leaders, deacons in ministry who give you counsel, obey them. Because here's the deal. Most of us disobey because we think we're smarter than everyone. We think we're better than everyone. And we think that we see ourselves more clearly than they do, and we're wrong because we're blind to our own blindness and we're foolish to our own folly. And if someone loves God and loves us and speaks to us, we should obey, we should listen, we should consider. And that requires what he spoke of last week, humility. Humility goes on to say, uh, you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he'd been gone for four years. He's about 800 miles away at this point. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, reverence and respect and sobriety. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to to work, for his good pleasure. Okay, here's here's a very important verse. Many verses of Philippians are are prone to be memorized. There's some very memorable verses in Philippians. This is perhaps one of the most memorable. And here, what he's speaking about is what we'll call the doctrine of regeneration. Okay? Jesus Christ is God. He died to take away our sin. That is true. But in addition to that, he regenerates us. See, some of you have been told that what it means to be a Christian is your sin is forgiven and you go to heaven. That's true. But in the middle, there's something else that is wonderful during this life called regeneration. And that is that the new covenant, that's the language of the Bible, is about God taking out your heart of stone, which is rebellious and foolish and hard-hearted and obstinate and stubborn and wicked and depraved and, and sinful. God takes out that heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. That is not a perfect heart, but a heart that is tender toward God, that desires God. Regeneration is being transformed, utterly changed from the inside out a new heart, which Proverbs says is the wellspring of our life, or a new nature, to use that language, or a new identity. It's a new center. You become a new creation, Paul says. You change from the inside out. Now what accompanies that new nature, that new heart, is new desires. You desire things you've never desired before. I'll give you an example. I was 19 when I became a Christian in college. I went to college with the express plan of meeting girls and breaking commandments. That was my goal, okay? I wouldn't have expressed it that theologically, but that's basically what was in my heart. And then I became a Christian and God gave me a brand new heart and out of that heart, I had brand new desires. Next thing I know, I really wanna go to church. I'm, I'm going to church for the first time and I remember walking in going, what am I doing here? I really like going to church, I guess. This is a whole new desire. Up until this point, church was the last place I wanted to go. If he would have said, do you want to hit yourself in the head with a roofing hammer or go to church? I'd say, I'll take the hammer. You know, I, I do not want to go to church. God gave me a new heart with new desires. Hey, I want to go to church. I would go to church and then I would stay and go to church again. Those were the people I made fun of before I had a new heart. In addition to that, all of a sudden, I wanted to go to Bible studies. I never wanted to go to Bible studies, ever. I never went to a Bible study. I made fun of the Christian kids on campus who carried their little Bible. Oh, look at that guy. <laughs> He's barely lonely, needs friends. He'll hang out with the other kids with Bibles. Glad they're quarantined. You know, and that was my thought. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I, God gave me a new heart. And I, I, a kid asked me, do you want to go to Bible study? I'm like, Yeah. I remember one quarter, I had five classes and six Bible studies. I was that guy that I made fun of. I'd be like, Bible study, I love that. Hey, do you guys have any other Bible studies? And I'd go to all their Bible studies. I was like a Bible study addict, you know? I just couldn't help, it's like chocolate ice cream. You got any more? I just kept going. And then I got invited to my first prayer meeting. This guy says, you wanna come to our prayer meeting? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I wanna go to the prayer meeting. I show up, there's a bunch of students in a circle. They say, Mark, since you're new, would you like to pray first? I said, no, I don't know how to pray. I've never prayed out loud with a group. I'm here to learn, you guys go first. So they all bowed their head and closed their eyes and I kept mine open to figure out what you're supposed to do in the prayer meeting. (laughs) And I really liked it. I thought, this is awesome. I was in a prayer meeting. New desires, how many of you have had that experience? You're making fun of Christians and then you is one and now you're making fun of yourself. You're going, what happened? It wasn't that you were trying to change your desires is that God regenerated you, gave you a new nature that had new desires. You'll hear people say things like, I was doing drugs, I met Jesus, I never wanted to do drugs again. I was sinning, I was rebelling, I was foolish and I just totally changed from the inside out. I used to have an appetite for certain things, sin and rebellion and folly, and then I got a totally new appetite and now I want to read the Bible and pray and repent and be humble and change, totally different desires. Regeneration is God does a good work in you, that's Paul's language, God is at work in you. If you're a Christian, God is at work in you, that's what he says, gives you a new heart, That heart has new desires. With it comes your spiritual gift, new capacity to serve God. With that, additionally, comes a new power through the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is God at work, empowering, enabling you. And so, what we're talking about here is that God is at work in you, but the Christian life is not without passion. It actually is very passionate. It's not about white knuckling and grinding your teeth and, okay, God, I won't do the fun stuff because I want to go to heaven someday, you know, but I'm really not happy about this. It really is a joyous life, new nature, new desires, new gifts, new power, new life that's passionate that's joy-filled, that's meaningful and purposeful because I'm doing what I was made to do, live in relationship with God and my will and God's will are synchronized and God gives me his power so that I might obey him and live a new life with him and for him and like him and through him. And Paul says, this is the best life there is. There's nothing like this. Let me say that this is absolutely antithetical to religion. The religious view of God is that he's far away and he tells you to do things and he stands back and keeps score. What We're talking about here is a God who initiates, a God who comes near, a God who works in us, a God who loves to serve, a God who delights in helping us because we need help. That's how great God is. And There's been a debate theologically about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Does God do things or do we do things and Paul here says, well, You work with God. Now, first, God works in you. God makes you a Christian. You and I, we don't do anything to become Christians. Jesus did all the work. He lived the sinless life, died the substitutionary death, and rose in victory. That victory is ours if we trust in him. It's totally a gift of grace. We don't do anything to make ourselves Christians. We trust in Jesus. Now, after that, we call our ongoing maturation Growing in the likeness of Christ, sanctification. And what this is, is where we re- react to God, He initiates, and we respond. That's the language we like to use. So, what He's saying is this God gives you a new nature, so live according to it. God gives you new desires, so feed them, nurture them. God gives you new gifts, so serve in ministry. God gives you a new power through the Holy Spirit, so. Live in accordance with the power of the Holy Spirit, not of your own desires and will, which were previously incapable of obeying God. One theologian says that divine sovereignty and human responsibility is like two pedals on a bike. I think it's a good, simple analogy. God works, you respond. God works something in you, you work it out with him. God gives you a good desire, you obey him. God convicts you of a sin, you repent. God teaches you something and you learn it. God initiates, you respond, and together, you make progress working with God to grow in your relationship. Those who overly stress your responsibilities, they put too much pressure on you. Those who overly stress God's work can have the proclivity of causing you to be lazy, indifferent, and passive. Instead of acknowledging God's at work, and I want to work with him. God's at work in me, so I want to work it out through me. Now, in saying this, I will acknowledge that you will have conflicted desires, okay? You will have conflicted desires. We call that temptation. You'll be tempted to sin. But if you truly have a new heart, a new nature, your deepest desire will be the desire to obey God, to live for Him, to live like Him, to to, to be someone who follows in the pattern of the life of Jesus. So this is one of the ways I know whether or not somebody's a, a Christian, I'll meet with them and I'll ask, what is your deepest desire? If they say, my deepest desire is sin and folly and rebellion. it's okay, then you need a new heart. If your deepest desire is, I want to please Jesus and love Jesus and know Jesus and be like Jesus. Well, that only comes out of a new nature. That only comes out of a new nature. And the good news of this is this is absolutely antithetical behavior modification. Behavior modification is you look at what you're doing and you change your behavior. God wants more than your behavior. He wants all of you. He wants your heart and your will and your mind and your strength. He wants to change you from the inside out. God doesn't want you to just change your behavior. He wants you to have a changed heart with absolutely new desires and new gifts and a new power to live a new life that is filled with passion and joy. And so the Christian life is not so much about what you need to stop doing, it's about what you need to start doing. To replace an old affection with a new affection. To replace an old pattern with an even better life through Jesus. And some of you are here today and you're trying to stop certain sins. You want to stop eating too much or drinking or lying or sexual addiction or pornography or pride or gossip or whatever your thing is. You are dealing with the fruit. The real issue is the root. You're dealing with the effects. The real point is to address the cause. It's always a hard issue. It's always a hard issue. And that God changes us from the inside out. That's what he says. God is at work, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now what I love about this, he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. The first thing that God changes in us is our will. Usually the problem is our will. We want to do evil. We want to do sin. So God has to change our will. God has to change our will. And I would say if you're struggling with sin, you've got to wrestle with the issue of will, desire, appetite, motive, your, your greatest passion, your deepest desire. Is it for Jesus or sin? That's really the issue. But God changes our will. How many of you are here today newer Christians absolutely shocked at how your will has changed, right? Your will was to sin and now your will is different. It's because God is at work in you and he's changing your will so that your will and his will are congruent. Some people argue for free will. I don't want free will, I want God's will. That's what I want. God, what do you want? That's what I want because God is good what he goes on to say that God is uh works in you both to will and to work he changes our will and then it works itself out in our life the way we deal with sex and power and money and glory and fame and loneliness and hurt and suffering and disappointment all of that changes because God works in us and then God works through us yes why does God go to all this trouble it says for his good pleasure God owes us nothing but here's the truth God is a great God Satan is horrible. Sin is terrible. The world is fallen, but God is good. God is a good God. And God takes pleasure. He delights in doing good. Now, what I love about this, so many religions say that God is bad. And if you want his help, you kind of need to manipulate him. You need to pay him off with a gift, a tithe, an offering, a sacrifice. You need to have a mantra whereby you can manipulate him to do good. What he's saying here is this. God is good. And God is pleased to do good for you. God wants to save you, help you, change you, encourage you, convict you, instruct you, transform you, change your desires, change, transform your heart from the inside out. God enjoys doing that. God loves saving people. God loves forgiving people. God loves changing people. He just does. It's all for his good pleasure. So what Paul is saying is this, you really should be so grateful that God is who he is. He's good, he's happy to help, he's at work before we are, he starts the change and he asks us to participate with him in a relationship. The Bible uses the word covenant to explain that relationship. The Bible also uses the word covenant to explain marriage, the marriage that I have with my wife, Grace. And like any covenant relationship, if only she works on the marriage or only I work on the marriage, it's not going to be a very good marriage. Likewise, in our covenant relationship with God, he initiates, he's always at work, he's totally faithful, it pleases him to help us and we need to respond and that's the essence of our relationship. Now, he says that there are a few things that get in the way, (laughs) that get in the way of working out of your new heart and new desires and new passions and new appetites and new gifts and new power. He addresses those in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. (laughs) Grumbling. You're like, what is that? That's you. (laughs) I mean, you know, seriously, I mean... This is complaining and whining and nitpicking and it's grumbling. Now, what he's not saying is that you need a lie. Somebody comes up, how are you doing? Great. I'm doing great. Get hit by a car. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's not what he's saying, right? You can be honest. Paul's honest. Hey, I'm in prison. They might kill me. You know, it's not my favorite thing to do. It's sort of a rough go for me. He's honest. You can be honest without complaining and grumbling. Complaining and grumbling is God, you have no right to do this. God, where are you? God, I thought you were a good God, God, what about what about the promises? God, I'm hurting. Okay? When you think of grumbling, complaining, whining, what group of people in the Bible come to mind first? The Israelites in the Old Testament. They kept complaining. Until what? They died. That's one way to stop complaining. You can just complain until you die. Some people do. Let me submit to you, it would be good to find another way to stop complaining other than dying. And here's what it looked like for the Israelites. They're walking around in the woods for 40 years on a journey that actually wouldn't have taken that long, 40 years. I don't like the food. I don't like the weather. I don't like walking. God, I'm angry. God, what are you doing? I'm teaching not to complain. Well, of course I'm complaining. I hate the food. I hate to walk. I I hate the people. I've I've seen these woods before. God, what are you doing? You need to stop complaining. Well, you said you were a good God and you didn't give me any good food and you said you'd leave me into a good place and you're leading me into a bad place and I'm very frustrated about that. And so where are we at? Well, I told you, I'm trying to work on the grumbling thing. Well, wow, grumbling, I mean, I haven't heard anything yet, I'll tell you. you know, it, Just 40 years. God's trying to teach him one lesson. Had they learned it, they may have been able to move on. Now, some of you are that, you complain all the time. No, I don't. You're complaining. That's my point. If you don't think you complain a lot, ask someone. And when they answer, don't grumble, right? Do I complain a lot? And if they snicker, that would be an indication that you are a grumbler. They're like, are you serious? Right? Complaining, grumbling, because when you're grumbling, you're so busy arguing with God, you don't have time to listen to him. You don't take, you accuse God, you're evil, wrong. You, 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 you can't do that. You have no right. You've, you've not taken the time to ask the question, okay, God, you're good. You're doing something good in me. What do you want me to learn? How can I grow? What are you trying to teach me? What do I need to repent of? It says, do everything without grumbling or questioning. Or questioning. Now, some of you will ask, does this mean I can't have a question? You can have a question, but there's a difference between having a question and always questioning. A question is, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. I'm confused. Explain this to me. Show me what God is saying here. I don't know what happened. Could you help me understand what I... That's a question. Questions are perfectly fine. Questioning is more like interrogation. Questioning is, I don't trust you. You're guilty until proven innocent. I'm holier than you and smarter than you. And until you convince me, I'm convinced you're wrong. How many of you were this kid for your parents? You were like this very little attorney who had lots of questions for your parents. (laughs) And it wasn't that you had questions. You were always questioning. Why? How come? Johnny gets to do that. What do you think about this? What about the war in Iraq? You're like, you're four. Shut up and drink your juice box. (laughs) And, And some adults are just always questioning. And what this is, this is... These are suspicious people. These are people who are mistrusting and distrusting. These are people with critical spirits. These are people that if you answer their question, they got 25 more questions and they'll have questions forever. And it's not that they have questions, it's that they're sinning through questioning. The heart is not good. And some people even do this with God. God, who do you think you are? God, how do you think this is fair? God, you said you'd never leave me or forsake me. God, you said this and that. God, you said you'd come through me. God, I deserve better. Questioning. Grumbling, sins to be repented of. Sins that actually get in the way of working out what God has worked in you. Stopping to say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to grow me in? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to learn here? Please don't make me walk around my house for 40 years until I die. Please give me the humility to learn so I can figure this out and move on with my life. Some of you are very angry at God and you question if he's good and you grumble against him. And the issue may be that there's one lesson that he keeps trying to teach you and you're just stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-hearted and proud and you just refuse to learn. So you keep marching anticipating that at some point he'll repent, he'll give in, he'll cry uncle. (laughs) He won't. (laughs) You're gonna learn that lesson. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. When someone is in sin and they're really not that repentant and they're grumbling and questioning, if you address them on a sin, hey, I think you're being proud. I don't think you're listening. I don't think you're growing. I, I think you're stuck on this issue. I think you're blind to your own blindness. I think you're foolish to your own folly. Usually they say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't see it the way I do. I'm not wicked. I, I'm, I'm multi-perspectival. I just have a different vantage point than you do on this. issue." We even come up with big words to justify our rebellion. Oh, that's your interpretation. I have a different interpretation that lets me whack people and be naked a lot. That's just your interpretation. We, we have all these silly ways of getting our way. And the best thing to do with someone who's hard-hearted, rebellious, and stubborn is to go up and ask these questions. Are you blameless and innocent? Gotcha. They may argue over the finer points of perspective and motive intent and, you know, what the Hebrew word is in Leviticus. But if you ask questions like, are you blameless and innocent? No. Nope. Okay then tell me where you're not blameless and innocent. Okay, then that would be your sin. Okay? You're grumbling, you're questioning, you're fighting, you're disobeying. God's a good God. He's trying to do a good thing in you and you're making it really hard because he's pushing down his pedal and you're not pushing down your pedal. Are you blameless? Are you innocent? There's always something for us to repent of and learn. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. What he's saying is this. Sometimes people who say they're Christians get so consumed in their own disobedience. They get so consumed in their own self-righteousness. They get so consumed in their own feelings and their own hurts and their own wants and their own needs that they forget that they're supposed to be a witness to the world. They lose sight of their mission. He's saying, you know what? It's a crooked, jacked up world. And non-Christians are watching you. And they are asking the question, does Jesus make a difference? And if you're questioning God, and if you're one who continues to complain all the time, and one who disobeys God, what he's saying is people are watching They're going to say, you know what, that church is a joke, that person's a hypocrite, and Christianity doesn't work because Jesus is a fraud. Some of you may not understand that a lot of people are watching you, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, and how you live will indicate to them whether or not this doctrine of regeneration is true and Jesus really changes anybody. That's very serious business. He goes on to say, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that it did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, this is to die, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's what Paul is saying. One day, we're all going to stand before Jesus. Is that going to be a good day for you? That's his question. And here he says that he wants to be proud of the people in his church who claim to be Christians. You may say, didn't he just say at the beginning of chapter 2 that pride is bad? There is such a thing as good pride. There's bad pride where you compare yourself to someone else, you think you're better than them, you cut them down, you're proud, arrogant, self-righteous. That's evil. What he's talking about here is if God works a new heart, new nature, new desires, new gifts, new power in someone... God initiates, and then they respond, and they repent, and they humble themselves, and they read their Bible, and they pray, and they pursue accountable relationships, and they change, and they're committed to living a life of repentance and change. What you should do is encourage that. You should walk up and say, I am proud of you. I'm proud of you. I see you changing. I see you growing. I see you maturing. I see you learning. You know, where you're at, that's different than where you were at last year. I'm seeing progress. This is not the kind of pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven. This is the kind of pride that comes with a spiritual gift of encouragement. I'm proud of you. Because in a fallen, crooked world, not a lot of people are going to commend you for growing to be more like Jesus. But as Christians, we should find God's work in the hearts and lives and minds of our brothers and sisters, and we should tell them, I see it, and I'm proud of you, and I'm encouraged. And God is working good things in you, and you're working with Him, and it's showing. It's coming out in your life, and I'm seeing it. Paul says, I want to be able to say that about our church. So someday, when you're standing before Jesus and I'm there, please, let me be proud of you in the right way. Let the leaders in this church who will stand there and give an account say, You know, I've seen Him change, Jesus, I've seen Him grow. I've seen them mature. I've seen them repent. I've seen a, a marked increase in humility. Jesus, I know you did a great thing for them. I know you did a great thing in them and they partnered with you and I've seen great things through them. I'm encouraged. Some of you make it so easy to be proud of you. I could tell stories for months and years of people that I'm exceedingly proud of. We see God's working in them and we see that they are working with God. They're not grieving, quenching, or resisting the Holy Spirit. They're not people who are committed to sinful disobedience. They're not complainers. They're not people who are constantly questioning. They trust that God is good. They use every circumstance as an opportunity to grow. And as a result, they make a lot of progress quickly spiritually. Some of you, however, it's a little hard. If I'm totally honest. There are some that I have concerns about because I haven't seen much, if any, progress. They'll say that theologically they believe things that are true, but even demons say that there's one God and they shudder, but they still don't have regenerated hearts and redeemed lives. I would just really encourage you to search your heart and ask yourself, Do I have a new heart? Do I have a new nature? Do I have new desires? Do I have new passions? Do I have a new power? Or am I just a religious person who's the same as I was years ago? And I'm disobedient and I grumble a lot and I'm always questioning. And as a result, I'm either a Christian that's not maturing as they should or maybe not even a Christian at all. I don't know your heart and I'm not Jesus. But I think that's what he's talking about. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Really be careful on these issues and think it through soberly. And when we all stand before Jesus, we want that to be a good day. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Not depart from me, I never knew you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He also says, though, that this is a case for joy. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I don't want to leave it on a note of discouragement. He says, you know what? I rejoice because I do believe that you are Christians. And I do believe that God has given you a new nature. And I do believe that God is working in you. And I just want to see you mature. And I see, want to see you get beyond this season of grumbling and questioning and get on with the mission that I have for your church. He says the same thing in chapter one that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus when we stand before him. If you're a Christian, here's the good news God is good, he's already at work, and he's invited you to join him so you can have a whole new life. And he gives us two examples because sometimes these theological categories become a little obscure for us, and when we have historical, concrete examples, that we can meet someone and look at their life and know them, it helps us to see what he's talking about. That's why you need to get in a community group and pursue relationships with other godly people. The first person he'll give for us as an example, not a perfect example, but a humble repentant example is this man Timothy, beginning in verse 19. Oh, I forgot one point. That's what happens when you do this four times. He says this, and I'll hit this point, that I may be proud in verse 16 that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. i tell you, as a pastor, the greatest fear is that you give your whole life to people who don't change. And you feel like you wasted your whole life. I preached every week. I served. I worked overtime. I invested. I, I tried. And we built this church, and people didn't change. That is not what God intends for us. God does not intend for the leaders to work hard and for it to be in vain. I'm asking you. I mean, I've given you 11 years of my life. By God's grace, I'll give you everything I got for the rest of my life. Please let me at the end of my life say this. It wasn't in vain and I'm proud of those people. That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. He lifts up two examples of people that haven't been ministry in vain. They've been totally worth all the investment and people that he's proud of in the right way. I hope to send to you, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son to a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will also come. He says, guys, I'm gonna send Timothy. I need him here a little longer, see if I'm gonna get out of jail, die, what's going on. And when I figure that out, I'll send him to be with you. Let me tell you the story of Timothy. Timothy's a guy who grew up, I believe in a single parent home, most likely. His mom and his grandma knew the Bible and they were Jewish women. They didn't know Jesus yet. We know his dad was a Greek, but we know nothing about his dad. It seems like he was raised in a single-parent home. Paul came to town. Timothy was a young guy who knew a lot of Bible but didn't know Jesus. Paul told him about Jesus, that all the Old Testament was about Jesus. He's Messiah. He came, lived, died, rose, gave salvation, regeneration, Timothy got a new heart from Jesus. He became a Christian. Out of that came new desires to do ministry, came new gifts as a minister, came a new power through the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden Timothy started growing very quickly. Paul went on with other missionary journeys to plant churches, came back, saw Timothy, and these two men just absolutely connected. Paul said, I don't have any son, and Timothy said, I don't have any dad. Paul says, I'll be like a father to you. You be like a son to me. I'll mentor you and encourage you and train you in ministry. And you and I together, we're going to go serve Jesus. And they do. They plant churches. They write books of the Bible together. They have this loving relationship. Father, son, and nature, Paul says here. He trusts Timothy to establish elders and sort out church conflict and discipline and handle finances. He's trustworthy. And what he says is this there is no one like Timothy. There's a lot of people who do ministry, but there's Paul says in his day, no one like Timothy. No one who is concerned about the well-being of others above themselves. That is a great example of true humility. What he's saying is this. There's a lot of guys in ministry, they want money, they want fame, they want power, they want glory. They do what's best for them. He says Timothy, he asks two questions. What's best for Jesus? What's best for the people? That's what needs to be done. Timothy's a selfless, humble, and in a very good way, a simple man. He looks out for people's best interests. Paul says, I don't have anybody like him. Now, in reading that, I would commend those of you who are older and have been Christians to be like Paul and to find new Christians and to be in a mentoring, loving, developing relationship of encouragement. I know that many of you are new Christians and you wish you had a mentor. You wish you had a Paul. You know what? I do too. I have never had a Paul. I have a lot of people who love me, pray for me, invest in me. I have a lot of people that I thank God for, but there's nobody I would say, that's my Paul. That's who I go to for help and counsel. So what I've decided is that rather than grumbling, God, where's my Paul? Questioning, how come I didn't get a Paul? (laughs) To instead say, okay, God, what are you doing in me? I need to appreciate the people you brought in my life and learn from them. And uh, I need to grow and mature so that one day I can be a Paul. I look forward to, like Paul, having been a Christian for 30 years and being more of a father figure to mentor more younger and developing leaders. And If you have someone who's like that for you, who's older and mentoring you, praise God. You're really blessed. That's a wonderful gift. For some of you who don't have that, then aspire to become that. That's what we'd ask. This guy, Timothy, though, what a great, humble, faithful servant he is. Trustworthy in everything. In addition to him, there is this man, Epaphroditus, Verse 25, I have thought it also necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill indeed he was ill near to death but god had mercy on him and not only on him but also on me lest i should have sorrow upon sorrow and i am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that i may be less anxious so receive him in the lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your Service to me. Epaphrodites is another guy. We don't know how he became a Christian or when he became a Christian. We do know, as far as we could tell, he wasn't a pastor like Timothy. He wasn't in vocational paid ministry like Timothy. He was probably a guy like some of you. He just was a guy who loved God and was serving in his church. I don't know if he's leading community groups or serving teams, an usher or greeter. He's helping out. He loves God. He's totally dependable. He's a guy who gets the job done. And so what happens is Paul has been gone four years. He's 800 miles away. It takes a six-week journey to get to him. The church that he founded loves him and hears that he may be dying under the death penalty. So they take a generous special offering. They're a very generous church. They hand it to Epaphrodites. They say, you need to get some time off work. Take that six-week, 800-mile trip, a lot of walking. Go see Paul. Tell him we love him. See how he's doing and bring us back a report and give him the gift. Along the way, Epaphroditus gets really sick. James Montgomery Boyce, this commentator, says he may have been sick for three months near death. I mean, maybe he's in a coma in a hospital bed. I don't know what's going on. Now the church is really worried. Is Paul dead or alive? Is Epaphroditus dead or alive? What's going on? We love these men. Epaphroditus gets better, gets up. And what I love is he doesn't go back to the church at Philippi and say, hey guys, I got halfway there. That whole near dying thing. I'm tapping out at this point. I'm a volunteer, you know, get one of the guys on staff to go. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gets healed and then he goes to see Paul. He completes his mission. I don't know if he's in a wheelchair, on crutches, dragging an oxygen tank. I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he is just, he is determined to get to Paul because that was his job. Gives Paul the gift. Paul, how you doing? Gets the report. Paul says, let me write a letter to my friends at the church at Philippi. Epaphroditus, I trust you to deliver it. Bring it back to them. That is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Epaphroditus' faithful service continues to bless you and I today. 2,000 years later, had he not finished his journey to see Paul and not faithfully delivered the letter from Paul, our Bible would be missing a book. I want you to know that when you serve Jesus, you're doing very important things, even if they seem very simple. And by virtue of the fact that you're a Christian, everything you do is vocational. It is ministry. It is done under the Lord. You have a new nature. You have new desires. You have new gifts and new passions. And you also have a new power. And that affects how you work your job and do your ministry and love your friends and Treat your spouse, raise your kids, and handle your finances. And all of life is sacred, and all of life belongs to God, and all of life is ministry. And here was a guy who it seems like he's just doing the UPS FedEx job. Take something to Paul. Oh, he's doing kingdom work. Very important. Very important. How many of you really need to repent because you're not that dependable, faithful person? how many of you are in management at a company and you would die to have one Epaphroditus? I gave them a task and they did it. Oh, wouldn't that be great? There are so many people who want work, but there's so many people who don't want to work. There are so many people who want to be given responsibility but aren't responsible. There are so many people that if you give them something, they're not going to finish it. Epaphrodites was that guy. Sees it through to completion. Why? Because he had a new power through the Holy Spirit to have perseverance. Because he had new gifts of service that he offered in ministry. Because he had a new desire that he wanted to do whatever would help Paul and the church and Jesus. Why? Because he had a new nature. Because he met Jesus. You know how many people were alive in that day? Why does God include this man in the Bible? Because he wants to show that a regular person with a regenerated nature is vitally used of God for important kingdom service. It's super encouraging. I'll close with a few questions. First, what is Jesus doing in you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'll tell you what he's doing in you. He's wanting to give you a new nature. Some of you come here saying, well, I'm coming to church hoping to learn some God stuff so I can improve my life. Here's the answer, Jesus. Give him your sin, receive his salvation. Ask him to give you a new heart so that you can then live a new life. Stop trying to fix your life. First get connected to the living God, get your past sin forgiven and get your new nature for the future. God has been working in your heart if you're not a Christian, bringing you to an understanding of your sin and your need for Jesus and his love for you and how you could trust him. So we want you to become a Christian Christianite by giving Jesus your sin and asking him for a new nature. Secondly, if you're a Christian, what is Jesus doing in you? It promises us here that he's at work in you. Where is he working? What is he teaching you? What is he convicting you of? How is he calling you to repentance? What Burdens for ministry and service has he laid on your heart? What people has he brought into your life? This is a really good question because the question we tend to ask people is, how are you? Fine, how are you? Fine, they're all lying. They're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. The better question to ask someone is, what is Jesus doing in you? How is God at work in you? That's a a heartfelt core center question. Draw them out, let them talk. Get to know what's really going on. Everything may look great outside. Inwardly, it may be real turmoil. Secondly, what grumbling and questioning do you need to repent of? What do you need to just stop complaining about? Okay, maybe it didn't go the way you wanted, but you've got to forgive and move on. You can't be bitter. You can't continually revert back to whatever it is that was painful. What grumbling just needs to stop? What questioning needs to stop? That on this side of eternity, we know in part. And you're not going to know your answer until you see Jesus. You need to live by faith and stop questioning God. Doesn't mean you don't have questions. But it means you stop that questioning disposition. Thirdly, uh, what do you need to work out? Has God taught you something and you need to apply it? Has God brought someone into your life and you need to learn from them? What do you need? Has God convicted you of a sin and you need to go apologize to somebody? What do you need to work out? And lastly, who needs you to be like Timothy or Epaphroditus? Who do you need to humbly come alongside like Timothy and help them? Maybe this is at work or in ministry. Or Epaphrodites, what important tasks do you need to see through to completion because people are depending upon you? And maybe it's even at school or work where people are watching you seeing if Jesus really does make a difference. Let me conclude with this, perhaps. When I say let me conclude with this, that's just so that you'll keep listening. I don't really intend to stop talking. Um, I'll say this. God is good. And God delights in forgiving people of their sin, giving them a new life through a new heart with new gifts and new passions and new desire and new power. And God wants to help you live a life that you can be proud of. Not that you boast, but you boast in Jesus, that he worked good into you and he helped to work good through you. And let me tell you this, this is the best life there is. Nothing beats this life. It's a joyous life. It's a purposeful life. It's a passionate life. It's a meaningful life. It's an eternal life. And it's a life that is only lived for those who are willing to obey, both spiritual authority and Jesus as well. Those who are willing to stop grumbling and start learning. Those who are willing to stop questioning and start trusting those who are willing to feed the desires of the new nature that God has imparted to them by grace. We want that for all of you. I want that for all of you.